Uh, if, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 139, we're, uh, we're actually going to be jumping around quite a bit uh, in Scripture this morning, but uh, I don't, so I don't expect you to necessarily keep up uh, because it, it, it's going to be a lot, but uh, Psalm 139 is a good place to start, it's a good place to be, it's a good place for you guys to be because it's, it is that good. And so this is a psalm of David and David uh, talking about God and, and, and God's knowledge of us. And so we're actually just going to look at two verses from Psalm 139 uh, together this morning, uh, verses 7 and 8. And so if you're not there yet, don't worry, you'll have plenty of time, we're going to come back to it too. And David says there, he says, where, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Me and Hannah have this um, have this anniversary ritual that we that we do uh, every year, and it's called something without the kids. And uh, it's wonderful. It's amazing. Uh, we look forward to it all year long. Uh, we plan our year around it because uh, there's nothing better uh, than doing something without your kids when you have three kids. And so uh, normally for us, any celebration, anything worth doing uh, is centered around food. We figure out what we want to eat, where we want to eat, and we kind of plan out from there. And so uh, we always go out on our anniversary for dinner. I know we're crazy like that. And, uh, and so uh, we, our, our discussion usually, because we don't have kids, it's like the one time of the year that we can uh, sit back and really take in the big picture. Uh, really figure, you know, just kind of look at everything that God has done. And, and, and so normally our conversation, uh, you know, goes something like, you know, can you believe that God has done this over the last year? I mean, look at where we were this time a year ago. And wow, didn't realize that was going on. Because, I mean, when you're in it day to day and you're just trying to keep kids alive and potty trained and everything else, it's kind of hard to see maybe what God's doing in the midst of all of that. And so we, we sit there and we're just, we're amazed at God's blessings and we're so thankful and we can't believe how we've gotten there. Can't believe that we haven't killed one of our kids on the way and all that kind of stuff. And so, and, and then usually we start to back up and we, we, we talk about, man, can you, can we imagine, can you imagine that five years ago we'd be sitting here and we'd have three kids at this point and who in the world has three kids in five years and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then we say, can you imagine can you, that God has brought us out here and who would have thought that 10 years ago that we'd be living in Oregon and, and, and this is where our life would be and all those sorts of things. And, and, and so, but that's not the ritual part of this. It, it was a few years ago that we were doing this and we, we had just had Wesley um, not, a, a year before. And so we were kind of talking talking about that, and I told Hannah, I said, I, I, I confessed to her, I, I said, you know, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and, and how much God has blessed us, and how good our life is, and I've been having a really hard time finding any joy in it, because I'm just waiting for something to go wrong, because it doesn't feel like things should be this good. I see other people, and, and I see the things that they're going through, and, and I look at my life, and I say, wow, like, it feels like everything in my life is in place. Why in the world is my life that way? I mean, this has got to end at some point. I thought, I thought in sharing that with Hannah that it was going to turn into a whole, like, I was about to get lectured, like, you don't have a lot of faith in God, and, and that sort of thing. And, and Hannah goes, you know what, I've been feeling the exact same way. Struggling with the idea that things are really good, but that has to change, right? 
I, I, I think we can all agree on it. I, I think we all feel in the depth of our soul that, that we all know that the reality is, is that suffering is a very human experience. That it is one thing that you cannot escape in life. That we all die at some point, and along the way, we die many deaths. We die several deaths. So that we have the end of things that we value greatly. And ending is always difficult. It's always painful. Philosophers have talked about this for ages. And there was one philosopher in particular a long time ago that said, we seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. Now, granted, it wasn't just a long time ago, but it was in a galaxy far, far away. But I think the idea still applies, that, that we all feel this nagging in our life that as things are good, that's not the way it should be. That actually there is an unlikeliness of good happening in our life, right? That good is the narrow path and everything else is suffering. And so it's so much easier to find yourself in a place of hardship and despair than it is to find yourself in a place where you can say things are really good. There are so many ways for it to go wrong. So many ways that we can look at the blessings of our life and say, but that could go away, that could end, that could be taken from me. And if it is, then how can I really say it's good at that point? I think as we, as we talk about this idea that God is good, and how do we say that God is good, there, there's one reason why me and Hannah have this discussion every year now at our anniversary. And there's a reason why we all walk around saying it seems to be our lot in life to suffer. And that is our idea of what is good is screwed up. See, I think when we say good, what we really mean is that things go my way. For good to be the reality of my life means that everything, things in my life, the things that I care about the most, must go my way. And I think we all know, we also have a very narrow definition of the way we want things to go. We know exactly the type of family we want. We know how many kids we want. We know the type of job we want. We know the places we want to live. All of these different things. And so good is when all of those things come together. And so when we say God is good, it is the way that we say God really is going to make things go my way. That's why he's good. We think we are blessed because of what God has done in our lives. And I've realized over this last week, it's been a week of great introspection as I've thought about this and thought about suffering and thought about as I see other people around me and I see them suffering and the guilt that I feel that I still have that spouse in my life. I still have all of my children. I still have whatever it is that I find value in. This is exactly how I think and talk to Hannah about it every year, that God is good because he has blessed me. And it's exactly the reason why we struggle to answer 
Well, if God is good, then why do we suffer? Because the two things don't match up. Suffering does not match up with our operational definition of good. Suffering does not go along with things going my way. So how in the world can God be good? I think any time we get to the subject of, uh, of suffering and pain in our life, there, there are one or two things that, ways that we like to talk about this. The first is the big one. Uh, the, the first is, and neither of them are really helpful in the moment. Okay, I'm going to tell you why. The, the first is we usually say, well, if God is good, if he's a loving God, then why in the world does he allow suffering to happen, right? It's the big philosophical question. And it's a good question to ask. And it's one that we need to have an answer to, that we should know about, that we should have an understanding of. And it's also something that you need to know about if you ever want to talk to anybody about Jesus because that's going to be one of the questions they're going to ask you. So it's a good thing to know. And it's usually where a sermon like this would go, and I don't want to talk about it at all today. The reason is because as good of an answer as you might have, when you're in the midst of suffering, when you've experienced great pain and loss in your life, it doesn't do you much good to say, well, at least I have my free will. Who cares about free will in that moment, right? Right? In fact, usually the pain is so great for us when we're really talking about true suffering that we'd say, I'd give my free will up in a moment if I didn't have to feel this kind of pain. What's more is it's harder to grapple with the fact that somebody else has free will and they chose to do something to you that caused you hurt and you're like, forget their free will, right? So as good as the answer it is to have, it's not something that necessarily helps us too much in the moment of pain and despair and suffering in our life. The second thing we normally do then, and in this, this particular discussion, is we go then to the end, the result, like where, where God takes it. We say, yes, there is pain in our life, but you know God is so good, he's so gracious, he's so loving, that he takes that pain, and he takes what was meant for death in our life, and he turns it into life. He uses it for his glory. He's able to turn these things around. He takes the very thing, the, the very power that Satan has, and he uses it against him. That's what he did on the cross. He had power over death, and he used death to be the gateway to eternal life. It's this amazing thing, and it is. I, I, I think it is the, one of the greatest shows of God's grace, his love, but ultimately his power that we have. And yet I think it does us a disservice as well when we're in the midst of suffering, because what this ends up being is just delayed gratification. Things aren't going my way now, but God is going to make things go my way eventually. If you've ever been in great suffering, you know that one of the worst pieces of counseling you can ever get is when someone comes up to you and they say, I went through exactly what you did and don't worry, God makes it better. And he did it in my life. And it's well-meaning. And it's nice to hear that God does have that power. But when you're in that moment, you say, yes, but that's your story. I don't know if that's mine. I don't know if God will sort this out the same way he did for you, for me. What's more is the problem with that approach is we haven't changed our idea of what good is. Good for us is still, God will make things go my way. It's just we're changing when we get it. Instead of on the front end, we get it when we've had to go through some suffering. Things will turn out my way eventually. God will make sure that they do. 
I think if we want to understand how we can say God is good even in the bad times of our life, life, the deepest, the darkest moments, God is good not just when we suffer, especially when we suffer. In a way that really matters. To say it in a way that makes a difference in those times, in a way that is real to us, we need to have a working premise that we can all agree on. If we're going to move forward in this together today, we need to all agree on one simple idea. And that is, I'm not that big of a deal. Not just me, you guys. You, you guys are not that big of a deal. No, I'm, I, I, I'm still a pretty big deal. No, all of us, we're not that big of a deal. Because ultimately, our idea of good, when we say good, it's this ultimate idea of the ultimate good, right? Usually, if we're still operating under things go my way, that's a pretty self-centered definition of good, right? So we need to get to a place where we say, maybe it's not all about me, and I can't say it's good if it's going my way, right? So, you guys need to believe this if we're going to go anywhere else other than here. If you don't, we just need to stop and you guys can get to you know, shooting off fireworks a little bit sooner today, right? So what we're going to do, I don't ask, I don't ask for input that often uh, from the crowd, but uh, I want you guys to say this with me. I'm going to count to three and we're just all going to say, I'm not that big of a deal. But you got to say it like you believe it, okay? So, all right, on the count of three. One, two, three. I'm not that big of a deal. Okay. I, I kind of believe you kind of believe it. And so, um, so I, I think that's good enough. So let's go, back, let's go back then to Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, because it's that good. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. This makes sense most of the way, right? Of course God's there in heaven. Of course God's there when we have his blessings. Otherwise, how else do we have God's blessings if he's, if he's not there? And so God, God in heaven, God with us in heaven, that makes total sense. But God with us in the depths of hell, that doesn't make much sense, does it? How can God be there? And if anyone knew, it was David. The one who wrote this, and, God, and David said, there is nowhere that you and I can go that God is not with us. And so what we see is that God is good because God chooses to be present with us. No matter where we are, no matter what we're going through. I mean, this, this is just common sense though, right? Like, I mean, if you're going to talk about someone, I mean, even God being good, and you're going to talk about them being good in the midst of suffering— it has to start with presence, right? This just makes sense to us. I mean, this makes sense to the world. Uh, Natan is a uh, Buddhist monk, and uh, he's quoted as saying, when you love someone, the best thing you can offer is your presence. How can you love if you are not there? We think, well, it's common sense, but maybe it's common sense to us. Because we're creating the image of God who knows this. We're created in the image of God, no matter who we are or what we believe, that we know if you're going to love someone, the first thing you can do is you can be there for them. 
in the midst of the darkness that they're going through. And that to choose to be there. See, the thing is for us, like, we don't have a choice whether or not we suffer, right? I mean, that's the whole idea. That's what we're saying. Like, it feels inevitable. Our lot in life, we are made to suffer. We don't get to choose whether or not we suffer. You know what we do get to choose, though, is whether or not we suffer what other people are going through. If you've ever received a call from someone that's going through something, the loss of a loved one, great trauma in their life, there are two thoughts that go through your mind instantaneously, right away, right? The first is, I should be there with them. Why? Because we know if you're going to love them, you need to be there. You can't love from a distance. doesn't work as well over Zoom. The other thing we think of is, I don't want to be there with them. Why? Because this is a choice I actually have. I can't choose when I suffer in my own life, but I can choose when I enter into someone else's suffering. And as much as I know they need me, because I know what it means to have someone with you in the midst of the darkest times of your life, I don't know if I want to put myself willingly into that situation. Because if I don't, yeah, I'll feel like a pretty bad person for about half an hour, but then I can go about my day like I had it planned. One of the hardest things in our life to do is to choose to enter in to the suffering of other people. And we have a God that chooses to do that with us every time we find ourselves in that place. But it is the hardest thing for us to believe. Probably because it is the most fundamental. I mean, David, the one who wrote Psalm 139, struggled with this very thing. He said elsewhere, he said, God, how long will you hide your face from me? He struggled to believe that God was there in the midst of his darkest moments. Because it's a very natural thing for us to think that if God loves us so much, the only way suffering can be possible is if he is absent. That his love would compel him to fix this. His love would compel him to stop my suffering. I used to think this, and I realized how childish of an understanding of what love is and what does and what it compels you to do and what it enables you to do. Um, when our oldest uh, child, Eden, was, uh, was born, actually before she was born, back up uh, for a second, um, me and my wife were both planners, and so Hannah came uh, into the room one day, and she's like, you'll never guess what I just found out. And I, I thought maybe like, she had like, gotten a call, and we were having twins or something like that. She was that excited. But it uh, turned out we were planning on having uh, Eden at Willamette Falls here in town, and she was like, they will take you on a tour around the facilities, and you can see where you're going to have the baby and look at a room and everything like that. And I was like, I mean... Doesn't sound like my ideal Saturday, but sure, yeah, why not? And so, uh, and so Hannah was all over it. Like, we were like six months out. She wasn't even showing. And I think that they thought we were like there to like snatch a baby. Like, they were like, I don't, I'm not sure if you're pregnant or not. We had to, we had to come with like ultrasounds like already out. Like, no, 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 we, we swear this is going on. And so, uh, so, we, so we're there and, and we're walking around. And uh, they, they take us into uh, their NICU. It's not a NICU. They, and that's what they explained to us. I don't even know what they call it. But they were like, if anything. If anything happens, if there are any complications, this is where we'll bring the baby. We have more uh, stuff in here, but we don't ha- 
have the full-size, fully equipped NICU that other places have. And so if it's really serious, she'll have, they'll have to be transferred up, to, uh, up in Portland where, where they have those facilities. And it's like, okay, well, that's good to know. And it didn't worry us because I was like, you know what, that's nice, but we're not going to need this. That's a, that's a pretty rare thing. And so, well, yeah, we didn't feel too concerned about it. And it's like famous last words because the day came for Eden to come. When she was born, Eden had a collapsed lung and wasn't able to breathe. And uh, they, handed her, they handed her to Hannah, and Hannah held her for about two seconds, and Eden started turning blue. And so they took her away, and, and, and they put her on a ventilator there in the room, and they were trying to see if uh, her lung would reinflate, and it wouldn't. And she was even struggling at the get-go to, uh, to breathe even with the ventilator. And so they, they took her into what was, what's not the NICU um, there, and they were saying, we're, we're going to have to transfer her. And so I go down with Eden... Uh, into uh, the room, and, and, and there I am, and, and there are doctors and nurses all around, and they're, they're trying to get IVs in, and they're not able to do that, and, I, and I'm standing there with her, and I, I have this weird thing where I can, I'm kind of like always in like an out-of-body experience, where I can always like see myself and like what I look like and be like, that's weird, or that's not weird, and stuff like that, and so I've been a dad for like two minutes, because I could always, I always thought, I was always weirded out by like, I was like, I'm not going to talk to this kid while she's in Hannah's belly because I can see that and that's weird to me. And so I was like, I'm standing there with Eden and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like Hannah would be so much better at this. She's had like nine months to prepare for this. And yet like she's back in the room and she can't come down here. And here I am like standing over this kid and I'm her dad and I love her so much, but I can't fix anything. And I could if I would, but I can't. And so what can I do? And all I could think to do was I, 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 put, I put my fingers in her hands so she could hold them when she wasn't screaming. And I just kept saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm not going to leave you. That's all I could think to say. I had no idea what to say. And even that, I was like, man, you look so weird right now. I just kept saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm not going to leave you. And as they were trying to get her ready to, to transport her, um, they were making plans, and they were saying, okay, we're going to have to take Eden in, in one vehicle, and, and then we'll have to bring Mom up later. She can't travel right now, and so we'll, we'll bring her another vehicle. And they asked me, they said, do you want to go with Eden, or do you want to wait and just go with your wife? And I said, there's no way in the world I'm leaving this child and leaving her alone. Sometimes love doesn't mean we fix it. Sometimes the greatest thing we can do in love is to just be there. And that is the kind of God that we have. That whether or not he fixes it the way we think he needs to fix it, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt he's there with us. There's nobody that had seen God work in greater ways than Moses, and Moses knew this in his bones. As Moses was getting ready to die, as coming, he knew to the end of his ministry, as he, as he was imploring the children of Israel and Joshua, Joshua to take control of the children of Israel, he says this to both of them in different ways, but he says to Joshua there in Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, Moses says, it's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, or forsake you. So don't fear or be dismayed. God is good. 
especially in the midst of our suffering because he's there with us. But the reality of our life is, I think we all know this, presence can backfire. Um, when you don't know like, the right thing to say and you try to say too much, or you just don't know how to relate because you haven't gone through it, right? Like, presence isn't always, like, it's a good start, but it's not always the right thing. I, um, I was thinking about this. I have a really good example from my life. Um, my grandma uh, had just died, and so we were, uh, we were at her uh, funeral. Uh, we were in the South, so it's not like here. We were, we were at a funeral home, and there was a casket. It was an open casket, and it was like an all-day thing, and so people could come, and they could visit, they could pay their respects, all that kind of stuff. So we're standing there, and in walked two people who had worked with my dad, and I had never met them before. And um, it was an amazing thing that they came. It was really nice, because it was actually his mother-in-law. It wasn't even his mom. And they, they come down uh, from a, a state away uh, to, to, to pay their respects and, and, and to be there. And, um, you know, the thing is, though, like, when, when you meet people for the first time at a funeral— it's usually, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where it's like, you know, less is more. And so just kind of walk up, say, you know, it's nice to meet you. Sorry for your loss. We're praying for you. That sort of thing. Move along. Well, um, this guy's wife decided it was a good time to just get to know who I was and what I was interested in and all that stuff. And I was like, we're standing there and like, it was like, you know, you're thinking you're like, you're going to talk to him for about, you know, two minutes maybe. And it turns into like a 15, 20 minute conversation. You're like, you know, this isn't the time I really want to make new friends or anything like that. And so, you know, finally got to the point though, where the conversation ended and she said, you know, she said, well, I'll be praying for you, which I was like, we could have just stuck with that and that would have been good. And, uh, and, she, and, and she goes to, I think, pay her respects, which I guess she was, but she goes over to uh, the casket and she pulls out a camera and starts taking pictures of my grandma. And um, we all just look at each other like, what in the world is going on? And it took everything in me not to walk up to her and be like, you know, she has had better days. Um, that might have been a better time to grab some posts. I, I just, I, I don't even know what was happening. I don't know. The, the thing that still boggles my mind is like, I think my grandma might be like in someone's like va- vacation album or something like that. And so, um, and so kind of a weird, like super nice that they were there, but it backfired. They obviously, for whatever reason, didn't know how to relate, didn't know what we were going through. And the amazing thing is, is that's not the God we have. In John chapter 11, uh, this is where Lazarus has died, and Jesus is, is coming to the place where Lazarus has died, and Mary comes out to talk to him, and it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. This is where you think Jesus is going to like give her a big sermon. I'm the resurrection and the life, and you've got it totally wrong, Mary, and have more faith. Exactly like I thought Hannah would do with me. And yet Jesus says, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Didn't just shed a tear. He wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. See, God is good, especially when we suffer, because God chooses to suffer with us. God's love is so deep for you and me that he has chosen to feel pain, suffering, and death exactly in the same way that you and I do. 
Think of this. We, we all agreed on this. I, I, I felt like we agreed. I felt like we had a moment earlier where we agreed suffering is a human experience. Get this. Because of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ, suffering is no longer only a human experience. God loves you and me so much that he has chosen, when he did not need to, he has chosen to suffer with us. Why? So that he can be there with us, not just physically. See, our God is not a God who comes and kind of at arm's length reaches out and says, sorry for your loss. I really am. Don't know what you're going through, but I am sorry that it hurts you so much. We have a God who is present, not just in the room, but he is emotionally and spiritually present because he knows and has felt exactly what you and I are going through. He hurts, he bleeds, and he cries just as you do. When we talk about the cross of Christ, we, we talk about this moment that changes everything, that is the redemption of life, but it's also the redemption of pain. It is a place that we see that our God has taken the complete suffering that you and I can go through, that he has felt death in the way that we do, that he feels the many deaths that we die over the course of our life, and he feels them as greatly as we do. He is there with us in our pain because he has chosen to be, and he has chosen to feel it exactly how we feel it. As, as Moses went on, um, well, actually, one of the reasons I think that Moses knew this, the, the reason that Moses was able to say to Joshua what he said, do not fear, do not be dismayed. It's God that goes with you, and he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. And that's the best thing you can hope for is because what Moses had learned earlier in his life. As Moses was coming down from the mountain with, with the Ten Commandments, as God had laid his heart out to the children of Israel, they comes down and they find there's a golden calf there. They've forsaken God. They've left him. And so God is so angry with Moses that the command he gives to him is this. In Exodus 33, says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have, you have brought out, up out of Egypt, uh, the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to, up to a lamb flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's crazy that Israel did what they did, and God is like, you know what? I'm still going to make things go your way. I'm still going to let you get to paradise. I'm going to send you out. What's better? I'm going to give you an angel, and I'm going to drive everybody out for you still, but I'm not going to go with you. So you get paradise, but you don't get me. And I feel like if we were in a similar situation, we'd be like, that doesn't sound too bad. Right? Like, we really screwed this up, and we thought you were going to kill us, but instead of killing us, we still get paradise. We just don't get you. Okay, that's not too bad. That's the thing we need. That's the thing we want. We'll take that deal. And yet Moses' response to God is strikingly different. Where in verse 15, Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, 
do not bring us up from here. See, Moses had learned that the things that they thought they needed were not what they really needed. And he had learned that suffering with God was better than paradise without him. So the reason that God makes himself, the reason that God is present, and, and he's present not just physically, but he's present emotionally and spiritually, and he suffers with us, is so that God can give you and me the thing that we desperately need the most, whether or not it's the thing we realize we really need. God is good because God chooses to give us himself. God is there. Because while you may believe the thing you need more than anything else is for your suffering and your pain to come to an end, God knows the thing that you need is Him. It's what you were created for. It's what you're meant for. And it's the only place that you will find real life in Jesus Christ. See, He has called you and me to Himself. He has not called us to his blessings. He has not called us to figure out how to create good for ourselves in our lives and that we need to learn that any well-being that we can bring about without him will only lead us to death. And so he says, in the midst of death, I am there. Why? Because I am what you need more than any of these other things you have lost. His choice to be present and to suffer with us shows us that God loves us so much that he has chosen to take these things on to give us what we really need. See, why it's so important that we realize that we're not that big of a deal is that we can finally get over the fact that we suffer and we can realize that when we do suffer, the one that is a big deal is there with us. That he comes to where we are. And that in the midst of the loss of the blessings of our life that we look at and we get thankful for, we can realize that the real true blessing is still there and ever-present and with us in the midst of the hardest times of our life. Um, I think one of the best examples of this um, comes from the life of John Wesley, actually right at the end of his life. Here's a guy that, I, I mean... Could have talked about anything, because to, to try to sum up who John Wesley was and what he did, I mean, you're, you're talking about a pastor who led a revival that basically not just brought souls to Jesus, but saved Britain from falling into a civil war. You're talking about a guy that single-handedly created, like, modern small groups. You're, you're, you're talking about a, a guy that, through his revival and his preaching and, and his belief in the power of the Holy Spirit, changed Christianity, particularly in America, and, and brought about revival here. I, I mean, there's so many things that this guy did and so much that he could have talked about at the end of his life. And yet, as he was dying... Uh, Wesley was surrounded by a group of people in his room, and, and he said something that most people did hear, but it was almost as if he was afraid they didn't hear it. And so mustering all the strength that he had left, he raised his arms in the sky, and he exclaimed, the best of all is, God is with us. 
all the things that we can talk about, that we can point to as blessings in our life, things that we mourn the loss of as we suffer and we feel their death and the ending of something that we hold dear, we can still always come back to the fact that the best of all is that God is with us. And no matter where you go, God is there. And no matter what you feel, God feels that with you. So that he can be available to give you what you truly need. As we come together, we're going to share a time of communion this morning as we continue to worship. And as we do that, it is a reminder to us that there is neither height nor depth, pain, grief, or joy that we can experience where God is not with us. He does not feel it. And what's more is he shares that with us so that he can share his life with us even more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I have to confess that it is a too much of a mark of my own life, and, and I believe probably for many of us, uh, our lives, to, to come to you and, and to thank you for the blessings in our life, to list off job, family, car, vacation, relationships, and then to struggle if ever come to a place where we thank you for your presence. God, there is not words deep enough to express the thanks that we should give to you, that we must give to you for choosing to be with us. Not simply as we make our way up to heaven as we find ourselves there, but even in the midst, in the darkness. Thank you for the life of your son, Jesus Christ, and that through him, not only do we have new life, but we know we are never alone. And there is no temptation There is no fear, there is no pain or suffering in this life that we can experience that you yourself have not gone through. There is nowhere that we can go that you do not go with us and there is nothing that can drag us down that you do not pull us out of. Heavenly Father, would this time of worship and celebrating your supper, the Lord's Supper, would it remind us, would your Holy Spirit witness to us that we are your children, we are dearly loved, and you are with us. And what's more, you are all we need. You are the blessing. Thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.